Welcome to Pull Up A Chair. I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK. And in each episode, I'll be chatting to some of the world's most influential business leaders and thinkers on sustainable growth, what it means to them and why it matters. We'll also be exploring the big question of how to deliver growth in a responsible and ethical way that meets the needs of people, planet and profit. For our first episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir John Simons. John has deep experience in both the financial sector with time at Goldman Sachs and as deputy group chairman of HSBC, as well as a career in the life sciences sector, including senior roles at AstraZeneca, Novartis, and now as chair of GSK. John has also been appointed by the government as life sciences champion. John has led large organizations through times of seismic change, including the global financial crisis in 2008, and more recently, the global pandemic. Pharmaceutical organizations like GSK found themselves at the center of the world's attention while the industry worked at pace and scale to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. He has strong views on the increasing importance of organizational purpose, the need for collaboration between government, industry and academia, and the role of technology in addressing the world's outstanding healthcare challenges. John, please pull up a chair. John, a really warm welcome to Pull Up A Chair. Um, Today's conversation is all around sustainable growth, but before I kick off on that topic, I can't not acknowledge the the experience that you've just been through um, as chair of GSK with the pandemic and the extraordinary perspective that you would have had sitting where you are. You've talked about resilience in the financial sector um, on the back of the crisis in 2008 and how we, everybody learned. And I think that one of the things we did learn out of the last two and a half years is that we've got a long way to go with health and, you know, and there's a lot more to do. So with that in mind and in the context of sustainable communities, economy, ecosystems, what do you think the world needs to do to prepare and build resilience so that we're ready for the next one? Well, firstly, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, That's a very big, very big question. Um, I think in the context of in the context of COVID, I think it was a remarkable episode of many parts of the world coming together to to solve a problem and a problem on a global scale. I think from the outset, it was never anticipated that um, a COVID vaccine would be available within a year. And indeed, I think I and many in the industry felt that it would be a number of years, but the pace of the development of technology, you know, was extraordinary. And it was solved because government, academia, researchers and industry came together to solve a problem. So we can do these things when we need it. But I think the really big question is, you know, have we built the lessons that we, the learnings that we should have had? Um, and there, I think I'm a little less optimistic. Many of the uh, pandemic machinery that the UK built, you know, has been a lot of it's been dismantled. So the so the testing network and uh, and so on, and also in I think in many aspects in the world, you know, we've not retained it, and it, because. What really faces us, we were quite lucky with COVID in many ways because there was a vaccine that was relatively easily available. 
if this were antimicrobial resistance or, or a much more virulent uh, virus, then I think you know, it would have been much tougher. And when you look at the global architecture, you know, the challenges the world faces to get vaccines to the world, we got vaccines to the developed world. You know, we got vaccines to the countries that could afford it. We didn't get it to the parts of the world that really needed it. And I think there's still a lot of reflection necessary to uh, prepare for the next one. And I think we haven't got, we need to build detection. You know, we need to build rapid responses and we really need to understand how do we distribute vaccines to the people in the world who really, really need them. And especially as you think that many in this country and other countries have now had their fourth booster vaccine and most of the world still remains unvaccinated. Absolutely. And I think the point you make around collaboration at scale is really important and the lessons that we're learning from that. But coming back to um, the one thing that the pandemic has highlighted, which you really nicely articulated, is inequality. Yes. And inequality across the world. Do you think that sustainable growth in the sort of broadest sense in terms of sustainable economies, community systems, uh, is possible where access to opportunity um, and healthcare and finance is still so difficult and so imbalanced? And there is an absolute connection between financial prosperity and the health of a community or a workforce? No, I mean, the answer is no, we are, we're not equitable. In, in, but I mean, I think it's just not in the pharmaceutical industry, it's not just necessarily globally. I mean, if you go back to COVID in the UK, there was some really, really good work that was done on the genetic analysis of the, uh, of the virus. And there were some fascinating conclusions about, you know, where, which parts of the population were genetically exposed to have a worse reaction. But actually, if you stand back and you say, you know, take the totality of the deaths in the UK, the determinants were not genetic, they were social. They were social determinants. And it really depended on what job you did, were you actually able to work from home? You know, where you lived, were you in, a, were you able to separate yourself from other family members or other, other people? So concentration of housing. You know, people who had poor diets were overweight, you know, had other comorbidities, did worse off. So actually, even within the even within the case of the UK, the outcome of COVID was more determined by social factors than they were genetic factors. And I think, you know, we have to really deeply reflect on that as to, you know, the people that are most vulnerable, you know, did they really get what they needed. And that was just in this country. And if you then extrapolate it across, across the world, then I think you really see that the social drivers of health are really, really important. And we don't really address them. And actually, I would love to pick up on that social element when we come to talk about business and the role of business in that, because you're absolutely right. There is, um, there is a real connection to the two. But I just wanted to pick up on life sciences. You know, you have absolutely said that the UK led the world in the sector during the pandemic and has a real opportunity to thrive and grow. And what we need is investment 
and what we need is growth in the sector. Um, I know you're very involved in um, the government's life sciences vision. You're also very vocal on the importance of, uh, you know, financing scale-up opportunities, you know, innovative businesses. And also, you've been vocal around the pensions reform too. So there's so many different things, so many aspects of that. I was just wondering whether you would be um, able just to sort of, in terms of the UK, to maintain our reputation. What is it we need to do here? Well, I think, I think firstly, you're absolutely right in saying uh, the UK did outperform. You know, and it, it, it outperformed the entire world. And if you look at the contribution that uh, the US made, proportionally was significantly less than the UK. One of the, one of the three effective vaccines came from the UK. All of the variants that determined the mutation of the pathogen came from UK sequencing. It came from, you know, the UK's ability to measure at that at that micro level changes in the changes in the protein. We did the clinical trials that determined all the alternative use pharmaceuticals that would benefit against COVID. So it was a very very substantial contribution and. I was very lucky and I, and I consider myself incredibly fortunate to be asked by the Prime Minister then, together with John, Professor John Bell, who was by far the most outstanding scientist, I think one of the outstanding scientists through this period, to develop, develop a science strategy for the UK. And we, we literally built it on those success factors. You know, what was it that led the UK to outperform? Well, number one, it was because the government, the academic institutions, the NHS, industry, the charities were all united in the pursuit of pursuit of one mission, which was to um, mitigate the impacts of COVID. And our strategy is simply that. It is simply that. If we can do it once, why can't we continue to do it. And if we can do it for COVID, why can't we do it for obesity and cardiovascular health? Why can't we do it for early detection of cancer? Why can't we do it for mental health? Why can't we do it for neurodegeneration and aging? Why can't we do it for respiratory factors? And actually that is exactly the UK strategy, government, academia, industry to come to solve those problems, because that is the health burden. That is the, you know, we're talking about the social determinants of health. That is what social deprivation means, that you suffer from many of those diseases, not just one, but multiple effects. And so we are bringing the science base together with the government, with fantastic government support to rebuild the spirit of COVID against those areas that really matter. And we're looking for joint participation the government will lead the government will set the initial funding industry will come in and let's see if we can you know change the face of the health of the uk and the health of the world by a very similar similar means health is there's a for the uk there's a triple dividend and you don't find that very often. There is, the, there is the prize created by innovation, you know, the rewards of innovation. Two, modern therapeutics or diagnostics significantly improves the process of diagnostics. You can get it right first time. 
just think what it saves for most people. And then thirdly, you know, the healthy population is a big productivity lever for the company, for the country, and we need plenty of those productivity leaders. But to your, to your other side of that question, you know, there are a number of things that we have to do, and we have to do much better. We have to allocate the science resources more efficiently against the things that matter. We have to make the NHS pro-innovation. We have to recognize that the biggest asset, the health asset the UK has, is its data. And then finally, and this is to the point you raised about finance, you know, we have to, we have to fund the scale-up phase of, of entrepreneurialism. We're great at starting companies. We're not very good at building big companies. And, you know, as you know, I've worked my life in healthcare and in finance. Those two, those two industries don't intersect at all. And there is no, literally no finance provided by UK institutions into the start-up and scale-up phase of UK life sciences. And that has to change. And it will change with pension reform. It will change with recognizing that there's another asset class alongside equities and bonds. So I feel really optimistic, actually, as I look forward to, you know, the, the, the changes that are likely to happen because, and thank you for your voice in that and making that sort of really front of the agenda because funding scale-ups is really important for the economy as a whole, right? This is our army of innovators that will help us deliver sustainable growth in the UK economy and globally and achieve the ambitions that you've talked about. Um, you talked about, you know, the UK being a real sort of centre of deep medical research. Um, but the one thing that struck me as you were talking about the academia, the government, the business coalition working together is purpose. Yes. And you've also been very vocal on purpose and what purpose means for businesses, not just be, and the stakeholders at large, but in particular employees and the importance of purpose. Would you mind elaborating? You learn many lessons through your career and I wouldn't have said this um, a long time ago. But actually, I think it is the single most important element of, of sustainability in business. It's what makes people get up in the morning and want to go to work. And if they want to do that, then, you know, everything, everything follows. And, and, I, and, I, and I really saw this in the pandemic, pandemic with, with GSK, um, where our purpose was to support and improve human health across the globe and and people rose to that we didn't have it we didn't have a direct role we would have liked a more direct role in you know providing a covid vaccine but we made our technology available to everybody in the industry um, and we we provided our products across the world people and we didn't lose a single manufacturing moment and it was because of the power of purpose and our engagement scores went up significantly during COVID because I think everybody understood what mattered by being employed by GSK and then with the separation we were able to re-articulate the cultural values that went with that which was the you know, how do we deliver on our purpose? And it has been, um, it has been hugely, 
hugely rewarding. And I'm, I'm definitely a convert uh, on that as a, as a critical business driver. And actually, if you can't articulate it, and it doesn't have to be as easy as it is you know, for a healthcare company, but if you can't articulate it, then your value proposition to stakeholders and employers is, is diminished. Yeah, I think I agree with you. So the, the purpose is really about that glue that holds everybody's interests. Yes. And you know, that's the, yeah. it's the economic as well as the stakeholders, the investors, as well as employees, as well as customers, as well as suppliers. I absolutely get that. And you, you alluded to the S being a real big focus coming through on the COVID as a result of the pandemic. And I hear a lot about the focus on the S. We know we've been talking about E and the net zero, but there is a real spotlight on social responsibility. And I just I wanted to just get your reflections on what you think business's role is in in that space aside from what we do within our business i think it's i think it i think it's huge i mean i, I think you're right in pointing out that the e in esg you know we've we've had some time to internalize that um but i think we're only beginning to realize the power of s and it really is the power which is what is your social contribution and how do you improve society? Um, and it is actually, I, that is the difference a GSK can make. You, you know, our pursuit of global health, and it's not just pursuit of health where people can afford to pay or in advanced markets where people, you know, that's, that's not, that's not global health. And I'll, give you a, and I'll give you a really powerful example. I think one of the gems within GSK is the HIV business. And the motto there is nobody left alone to live with HIV. And of course, our business economically and financially is driven out of the US, you know, as all pharma businesses. But that's less than 10% of the world's population that suffers from HIV or is exposed to HIV. We launched this year, you know, the next generation HIV therapeutic. Within seven months, we licensed it to be available around the world. So, you know, within seven months of launching it within the US, we'd licensed it to be available in Africa and are now going through the process of making it available. You know, I'd say 80% of our HIV business is done, is, is delivered under WHO terms. And that I think is what, that's the social aspiration, you know, where, where your products and services are around, available around the world, and of course, if you can protect them, you have an obligation. You have a responsibility for the world to benefit from that. And, you know, that's just been the, that's the joy of GSK. One third of the children around the world get a GSK vaccination. And, you know, that is the joy of this industry. Wow, that is amazing. So you just talked about the pace of change, the pace of innovation around development of drugs and medicines. And I guess, you know, when you have such a responsibility for society, like a third of children, that's a big responsibility. 
the risk and reward in in the pharmaceutical business is really sort of really important balance to have how do you manage that culturally because you need to have the ambition and risk appetite but there's also the risk reward you know things will succeed things may not succeed how do you manage that culturally within an organization that has so much focus on it yeah it's a really it's a really good question and actually it goes back to you know the determination of around the new GSK and why it needed to be different from the old GSK. The one thing we haven't changed and we've probably extended is what I've just described, sort of the social global health ethos, you know, which is a very big part of the purpose of GSK. But that purpose or that aspect of the business is only possible if you perform. And so that wasn't the case, you know, in the old GSK. And this is the wonderful, you know, advances that Emma and the management team have made. That they have made GSK really competitive. And I think that if you do perform, you can have more freedom as to how you allocate your resources. But you can't allocate resources if you're not if you're not generating value for all stakeholders, including shareholders, it's their money. And if you're not returning value to them, you can't go spend it. So I think, you know, it is it is still very much, you know, part of a performance driven model. And we have significantly improved our our performance. And, you know, we're allocating over the course of the coming years, you know, a billion dollars to, to support the needs of, you know, people in disadvantaged societies, whether it's products or research or collaborations or partnerships. But it starts with you've got to perform. There's no easy way through this. And you hit a really, well, the next thing I was going to ask you about leadership, because it's an incredible leadership team you have. And a lot of that's under the leadership of you as chair of the board. And I just wanted to turn my focus to boards. You're, you have a reputation of being a completely transformative leader, right? And, and all the roles that you've had across the sector and, and previously before, you've really led big seismic change. Um, can I just ask you about how you have seen or what do you think, or how do you think the role of boards has changed over that period? It, it, is, it is changing. Um... And you know clearly there's a lot of there's a lot of frustration about you know the perception of imposed governance on boards and you know but I you know I remember when I when I joined GSK I made it very clear that good governance was a byproduct of good performance and you know I didn't want to be known and still don't want to be known for running a board that ticks every conceivable box. I want to run a run a board that of a company that delivers what I've just what I've just been describing. And I think it is it is primarily a case of prioritization and allocation of the time. We are we do consider ourselves a new company. Um, and we've tried to approach it by refreshing everything that we do 
And one of the things that we've, we are in the process of doing is redefining the role and purpose of the board and what, is, what our deliverables are over the five, over the five years. And actually, I don't think governance is on that list or anywhere near that list. We will deliver that performance to the highest possible standards, but I'm not going to spend the board's time on that. And so I think, you know, if you complain about it too much, I think you might not have got your priorities in quite the right way. So I think it comes back to, are you in control of the fundamentals? And of course, you know, the first thing the board has to do is ensure it has a clear strategy and an outstanding CEO and management team. And I've definitely got both of those. Fabulous. I, I'm really excited about the future for GSK as we look forward. Um, I want to just turn to a little bit about you, if that's okay. Um, if you could go back in time, uh, what bit of advice would you give your younger self? I think if my younger self thought I'd be doing, sitting here describing this, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, and even if I believed half of it, I might have had a I might have relaxed a little bit more and maybe been a little less, a little less driven. Um, and still am actually, you know, I remember, you know, my father always used to say, he, 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 you know, when will you, when will you retire? And I said, well, I'll retire when I'm finished. He said, well, what will you have to do when you're finished? I said, I don't know, and I'm still <laughs> not finished. Um, but I think, um, of course, these things do come at a cost. And, you know, people that say, you know, I don't ever have a problem that say uh, people who say they want a work-life balance, I've made, I've made my choices. It's not balanced. It is not balanced. And of course, you know, we all know which part of the, which part of the balance suffers. It's uh, friends and family. And, um, you know, I think if I'd have known I was going to be here, I might have balance it a little differently in my early years. The beauty of hindsight, John. Yes. The beauty of oh, hindsight. But hopefully our listeners will be listening to you and hopefully take something away from that. Um, we've talked about sustainable, sustainability and, you know, grow, you know growth, economy, um, health, etc. What do you do to sort of um, sustain yourself? The biggest influence um, outside of work and is the work my wife and I, my family do in Africa. And, um, you know, we have a charitable foundation in Uganda that provides education to, you know, all the people that I've described in the underprivileged part of the world. And that's my reset button. I was there 10 days ago. And, um, if ever, you know, life appears too stressful, you think you've got your priorities right, well, those people tell you what really matters in life. And, um, you know, the fact that I'm able to do it with my wife and, and, my, and my children and some wonderful trustees that we have is a, is a pure joy. It really is. And uh, that's, you know, that's where I get my life driver from. Wow, what an inspiring end to this. I just wanted to say thank you so much, John, 
for sharing your perspectives. It's been an absolute privilege to, uh, to speak to you today. What I've taken away though is that real strong sense of purpose. Purpose in your personal life from what you've just talked about. Purpose in what you do with your organisation. It's not just about governing, it's about doing the bigger, the bigger thing. And actually the social contribution and improvement to society, that really comes out really loud and clear. Thank you for everything you do as a champion for the sector. And um, we're incredibly lucky to have you as a, a loud voice for the UK life sciences sector. And hopefully, through the success of GSK, see the impact you have globally too. So thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining me today on Pull Up A Chair, whether you're at home, at work or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from business leaders and thinkers on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet and profit. Goodbye.